Will you pray with me as we begin? God, we are dependent, as always, upon you for enlightenment and for revelation through the text of your word. There are many things in this text that are uh, awful to read, awful to imagine, and even made worse by the fact that there are some in this place who've experienced similar things. Manipulation and exploitation, the, the, the violence and the usury, God. And so we pray for you to go before us this morning to do what no human preacher or shepherd can do, and that is to speak in this place to every heart, to meet us in an individual and personal way, while at the same time we study you to glorify you corporately. We pray that you'd move in this place and that we would find a a clearer understanding of who you are and who you've created us to be for your glory and the good of others. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been around here for a period of time, uh, you know that typically my practice is to begin these messages with some sort of silly kind of anecdote, something stupid I did or something stupid my family did. They do lots of stupid stuff, so that makes that easy. Um, When I'm looking at a text like this, I did not feel like a joke or a silly anecdote was appropriate. There's, there's a heaviness to these texts that I want to treat with caution. And I want to be really careful as we wade into it. So uh, if you were here this morning waiting for me to say something dumb, trust me, I'll say something dumb again in the future. But today, I'd like, I'd like to keep us in sort of a serious tone because I think this is a serious matter. The reason that I put these two together when I was planning this series, the end of 19 and all of 20, is because in these two, I, as I've already said, I see some similar themes. I see some similar themes beginning, and maybe most importantly, with a lack of faith or a lack of trust in God. In both of these stories, the pain and the violence and the oppression that happens comes because, ultimately, of a lack of trust and faith in God. We see in Abraham's case, he says himself to Abimelech, Well, I looked at you and I thought, you don't seem like a God-fearing man and you'll probably kill me for my beautiful wife, so i got to do all of this to protect myself. And in the case of Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19, we hear them say to one another, hey, you know what? Where are we going to find a husband? Everybody's been obliterated and and we're not going to have any descendants. And so we've got to do this thing where we take advantage of our father in order to have offspring. But in both cases, all of this violence and all of this uh, oppression and manipulation, it stems from a lack of faith. Now, in Lot's daughter's case... You could make an assumption, Kristen talked about that last week, you could make an assumption that that has to do with their upbringing. That maybe they were brought up in a place where faith was not prevalent. And maybe they were brought up by parents who didn't remind them that God is faithful and good and that he provides. Uh, We could look at Lot's uh, children's lack of faith and say that has to do with him, but that would be taking a guess. We don't really know exactly why they have the lack of faith they do. But what we see here is that it doesn't occur to them that their future is guaranteed because of the faithfulness of God rather than their own manipulation or their own machination, if you will, right? They don't have to do this wicked thing in order to preserve themselves because God is faithful. Now, we we see a lack of faith there that might be because of their upbringing. On Abraham's case, that's a faithful guy. So the lack of faithfulness or the lack of trust in God that we see on the part of Abraham in Genesis 20 is not from poor upbringing. In fact, we've seen him be very faithful even in the chapters that precede this one. So what we're seeing in the character of Abraham in Genesis 20 is is not a lack of knowledge of who God is or that he can be trusted, but rather what I would call a lapse of faith, L-A-P-S-E, a lapse of faith. This is a man who has been faithful, but is not faithful in this case, and in fact, is returning to a lack of faithfulness that we've seen pattern in his life before. In Genesis chapter 12, if you were part of this study with us when we were in Genesis 12, when Abraham and, well, at the time it was Abram and Sarai, when they went into Egypt, he did this very same thing to the Pharaoh. He offered his wife as a way to protect his own skin, right? 
And we saw the consequence of that here, and he falls into it again. Now, before you get super judgmental at Abraham, understand that in some ways it should be a bit of a comfort to you because I would say that, that this lapse of faith is indicative of all of our lives as we walk this path with God. We all have moments of great spiritual faithfulness and trust. Moments where we're worshiping God. Moments where we're revering Him. Moments where we're living a life of honor and faithfulness. And then moments where we fall back into the same old thing. It's why the writer to the Hebrews will say in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's a text that's written to believers, to those of us who put our faith in Christ, and there is a measure of faithfulness in us. There are still sins that can tangle us up, it says in Hebrews 12. Still sins that can wrap wrap us up and, and cause us to trip and fall. We're watching Abraham experience a lapse of faith that has an incredibly negative impact on the people around him, a damaging impact on the people around him. So in one sense, we go, well, in that, Abraham is like all of us in the fact that we have moments of faithfulness and and moments of of unfaithfulness. But at the same time, we want to look at it and go, well, it's not fine to just be like, well, that's going to happen. Sometimes I have good days and sometimes I have bad days. No, we, we want to look at the text to figure out what it's going to take to maintain consistent faith in God. In both of these texts, we see a lack of faith. It's interesting to me even that Abraham looks at Abimelech and says, well, I I sort of assumed that there was no fear of God in you. That's almost laughable because in this text, in Genesis chapter 20, the lack of fear of God is not in the case of Abimelech. If anything, that pagan king is fearing God. The lack of fear of God we see in Genesis 20 is in Abraham himself. So he's casting a disparaging look at someone else while he himself is guilty of the very thing he's accusing them of, right? That also sometimes is indicative of the way we conduct ourselves. But we see a lack of faith here. That lack of faith, I think, stems from fear. I think that lack of trust in God stems from fear. And it's helpful to sort of watch the trajectory of this. Just lay it out. They're fearful. In Abraham's case, he's fearful of losing his own life. He says, I was afraid if I came here with my beautiful wife, you would take her and you would kill me. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a fair thing to be afraid of. How to respond, which is different than the way we see Abraham characterized in Genesis 20. But there is a limited perspective. There's a limited perspective for Lot and his daughters. It says, uh, if you remember from last week, when they're, when they're pulling Lot and his daughters and his wife out of Sodom and Gomorrah by force, Lot argues with the angels. Remember that? And he says, I can't go into the hills. I'll die if I go into the hills. Can I just go to a little city? Isn't it small? It's a small little city. Let me go there. And so he went to Zor. By the time we come to the end of Genesis 19, Lot and his family have decided like, Zor's not safe. So they got some fear and they end up going to live in a cave. And some uh, theologians or commentators will say that, that it's possible at this point, and this is just a guess, that Lot and his daughters are assuming that they're the last people on earth, that everybody has been wiped out, that Uncle Abraham is gone and everybody else is gone. Because why? Because their perspective is limited. They put themselves in a cave. And as a result, they can't see the truth. They can't see with accuracy that all they'd have to do is come out of the cave. They could go and live with Uncle Abraham and probably find husbands. And probably have descendants and probably certainly, not probably, certainly receive the blessing of God if they'd simply get out of their cave and see how things actually are. But for us, sometimes the fear we have, that fear to preserve our own life or to protect what we think we deserve, that fear we have of other people's actions is only enhanced or made worse by the fact that we've got a limited perspective. We're making judgments of other people or we put ourselves in a cave where we only see what we want to see. And as a result of their limited perspective and their fear, what we also see is them driven towards self-preservation. 
self-preservation. In both of these stories, 19 and 20, in both of these stories, we see people essentially going, how do I take care of me? What's in it for me? How do I get out of this what I want? In Abraham's case, how do I preserve my own life at any cost? In Lot's daughter's case, they're going, how do we make sure we've got descendants at any cost? We exploit our father, we get him drunk, we take advantage of him, right? Well, well, the problem is they're asking the wrong question. And I'll say, for the sake of just you sort of putting a bookmark in your brain, that the question, what's in it for me, is not a question for the people of God. It's just not a question for the people of God. There is no circumstance in your life today or ever as a follower of God in which your primary motive should be determined by asking the question, what can I get out of it? Or what's in it for me? Or how do I take care of this guy? The moment that you start to ask that question is the moment that your actions will certainly lead to damaging other people. Damaging other people. Self-preservation is their goal. And it's not a question for the people of God. It ignores the truth. It creates... Uh, an ignorance of the impact on other people, and it sets aside God's expectation. Because sometimes the answer to the question, what's in it for me, doesn't pay any attention at all to the fact that God has an expectation that isn't really about you, right? So we see fear, we see limited perspective, we see self-preservation or asking the wrong question that results in a lack of faith, and ultimately the byproduct is exploitation of others. We see Lot exploited here. We see Sarah exploited here. We see Abimelech and the women in his household exploited here. We see all kinds of people hurt in in very significant ways. And I will tell you that what we see in Genesis 19 and 20 is no different than what we see on the pages of the newspaper or on the internet, what you see with your coworkers and your schoolmates and the people on your block. We still continue to see people today hurt and taken advantage of and violated and exploited because as human beings, we don't trust God because we're afraid for our lives or afraid for what other people will do. We have a limited perspective And all we're asking is, how do I get what I want? How do I get what I need? How do I take care of this guy? And when we ask that question, the necessary result will always be damage for others. Now listen, we trust and obey God for his glory, right? We trust and obey God for his glory. That's the primary. I I don't know whether you know this or not, but, but we are created to glorify God. Each and every one of us built from the ground up for a singular purpose, and that is to know and glorify God, right? So certainly, we are faithful. We live lives uh, hopefully free from this kind of exploitation for the glory of God. But, but one of the things I want you to see in this text is, is that we don't, just, we don't just live a life of faithfulness or trust in God for his glory. We certainly do that primarily. But one of the great byproducts of a life of faithfulness is good for others. Your faithfulness, my faithfulness, my trust in God is good for you. My trust in God is good for the people on my block. It's good for the people I work with. It's good for my children. It's good for my friends. It's good for the people in this neighborhood that I don't even know yet. And the reverse is also true. That when in my fear or my limited perspective or when in my desire to preserve myself and what I want, I start to exploit other people, it's that lack of trust in God that, number one, negates his glory in my life. So when I lack trust in God or I lack faithfulness, he cannot be glorified by my actions. You know who's glorified? By unfaithful actions, me, right? So God can't be glorified, first of all, but but there's a byproduct also. When we live a life of unfaithfulness, not only is God not glorified, but then we start to hurt other people. You see, faithfulness or trust in God in the midst of the mountains and the valleys, as we just sang, that trust in God is for his glory, yes, but it's also for your good and the good of others. 
It's for your good and the good of others. The things that God expects of us, the things that God has called us to, the life that Jesus modeled, that then he invites us to model after him, right? As we reveal Christ in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes, that life of faithfulness doesn't earn us anything in eternity, right? We don't buy our salvation. We don't earn any any additional favor with God. That faithfulness produces glory for God, And good for others. And it's also a way to live the life that God built you for. Trusting in God is a way to enjoy the life God built you for. And it's good for other people. When we trust in our own plan. Or the Bible would call that uh, trusting in the flesh instead of the spirit. When we trust in our own plan because of our fear and limited perspective and our self-preservation. God is not glorified and we hurt other people. The impact is lasting. We know that for the Moabites, for instance, the descendants of Lot and his daughter. uh, they, They had a son named Moab. The Moabites, we could read later in the book of Numbers, were people that were known for sexual perversion. They were known for sexual violence. That, that is the legacy that comes out of this. Not only that, the Ammonites, who were the descendants of Ben-Ami, the other son of Lot and his daughter, the descendants, the Ammonites, were known for, for uh, violence and war and child sacrifice, ripping children away from their parents, right? So there's a legacy of pain. There's a legacy of violation. We know that when we fail to trust God, other people end up getting hurt. And some of you know that personally, because you're in this place and you feel the pain, even as you read the story, you can point to specific times in your life where you've been hurt because of someone else trying to serve themselves. God is not glorified and we end up hurting other people. Not only that, but additionally, we see that the image of Christ is distorted or the image of God is distorted. I, I think one of, the, one of the terrible things, it's not the worst thing in these texts, but one of the things that just makes me groan is Abimelech's perception of God because of Abraham's revelation of him. Does that make sense? By the time we get to Genesis chapter 20 in, verse, uh, in verses like 9 and following, Abimelech comes to a- Abraham and he's like, hey, why did you do this? Did I do something to you? Have I done something wrong? Like, have I wronged you in some way that you, that you brought all this trouble down on me? Like, this is the kind of thing people don't do. We don't hand off our wife to other people and say she's our sister. That's just not done. I love and hate the fact that in this particular case, a pagan king is having to tell the anointed man of God what is moral and what is right. He's looking at him and saying, you're not seeing this correctly. This is unjust in a pagan context, right? It's worth us sort of stepping outside and recognizing that there are times when the pagans get it right and the religious people get it wrong. That there are times when all of us get it wrong. That there are times when all of our perspective is limited or we're we're motivated by fear or we're motivated by self-preservation. And in this particular case, a man who has a very limited relationship with God ends up coming to the man of God and saying, I don't think you're seeing this right. It's important for us to note that and to see it as a little bit of a side note in the midst of this text. Because in our world today, it's also important for us to always be willing to listen to every voice. It is always possible that we've got it wrong. It is always possible that the way we're perceiving it is based upon our limited perspective. And anytime someone comes knocking to say, I don't think you're thinking about this right, we should be willing to listen. Just because people are religious does not mean they see things correctly. Just because people uh, can quote Bible verses or whatever else does not mean that they see things correctly. Why? Because we all fail. 
We are all broken. We are all busted. There are all days where we're going to get it right and days where we're going to get it wrong. And with that perspective, we never want to look at any group of people or any individual and say, that person always gets it right. And we certainly don't want to say, I always get it right. I always want to have the posture to listen to someone else, even if there's someone that doesn't know God, because sometimes they'll correct my wrong perspective. And that certainly happens in Genesis chapter 20. Abimelech has a distorted view of God because of Abraham's representation of him. The negative effects of a lack of trust or a lack of faithfulness in our life, a lack of trust or a lack of faithfulness, it ends up removing the glory of God from our lives. It also ends up taking away the opportunity to live the life that God built us for. Most importantly, I think, it ends up damaging the people around us, right? Because the motivator of faith, the motivator of the Christian life is not for you to have your best life. Honestly, the the motivator for following Christ and for living a life of faithfulness is not about you having the happiest time, right? It was never about you. When they asked Jesus, hey, what's most important? He says two things. Love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say, and have a great life. And sometimes we get that upside down. Sometimes we think the most important thing is to love God and have a great life. That's not what Jesus says. Well, the way in which we love God and we love others is by trusting him. And when we fail to trust him, even in the mountaintops and the valleys, we end up creating this damage, both physical damage in the lives of other people, but also the marring of the image of Christ. We talk around here a lot about the idea of circles or oikos, the idea that each and every one of us were created uniquely to have a unique impact on a unique group of other people. There are people that God has created you to impact that I wouldn't impact in the same way. They'd meet me and they'd be like, yeah, I'm not interested, right? But you have a unique God has created you in diversity. He's created exactly the man or the woman that you are to impact a certain group of people. Abraham messes up his opportunity to paint a picture of Jesus to his circle. Abimelech's in his circle here, and he blows that. So where do we go from there? Where do we go from there? We, we see that there are these similarities in the two stories, that there's all this damage that's created because of a lack of faith, fear, limited perspective, self-preservation. These people end up exploited. Well, the place I think we need to finish, and the text teaches this, but I, but I also want to sort of broaden your view here. The place we want to finish this morning is by reminding ourselves that our God is a redeemer. That is a redeemer. And when I say that, some of you, uh, you might immediately get a, a thing in your head that goes, oh yeah, because he died on the cross and rose again. Yes, 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 yes. He's a redeemer because he saves us from sin and he affords us the opportunity to go to heaven, right? Jesus came to earth in a body, fully God. He took the sin of the world upon himself. He died in our place to pay the penalty for that sin, our sin. He rose from the dead, proving that he has the power over life and death, and he extends to us by his grace, resurrection life. He redeems us, if you will, from sin and death. So yes, when we say God's a redeemer, that that is primarily what we mean. But I want to remind you this morning, and we've talked about it before, that God is a redeemer in more ways than one. He isn't just a redeemer in a salvific sense, eternally. He is a redeemer in everything. He redeems it all. He can redeem the broken relationships in your life. He can redeem the loss of a job. He can redeem all of it. He redeems it all. That's who he is. He is setting all things right. He is restoring all things. He is wiping away every tear and taking all the pain. He redeems it all. Uh, Even if you take the example of Lot and his daughters, you look at that and you go, well, how, how can that be redeemed? Well, it's interesting. If you were to look at the, at the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, 
If you walk back the genetic uh, background of the Lord Jesus, there is a woman in his genealogy named Ruth, who is a Moabitess, which means that Jesus has rape and incest in his background, in his family history. It means that God even took this unholy thing that occurred and redeemed it. Now, now, let me just say this. For some of you in the room who've been raped or who've been the victim of incest, who've been manipulated or trafficked or abused, taken advantage of, knowing that God redeems all things, I'm guessing is not a great comfort to you, right? To have somebody go, oh, yeah, no, I, like your situation was hard, but God's going to make it all good, but maybe it'll be 400 years from now, right? That doesn't bring you a lot of comfort in the moment. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. So I want you to hear me. If you're hurting, if you've been victimized, if you've been abused, God redeems it all. But there's a second piece of this that I want you to hear. It's not just that God will redeem it somehow, but it's also that God cares about the terrible thing that's happened to you. That God cares about that. He cares about you. He loves you. He sees you and knows you. He understands the circumstance you're in. And the things that happened to you while God redeems them happened, not because God was trying to sort of, you know, be the puppet master in your life, but because we live in a broken and fallen world where everybody's busted. You can look left and right and back and forth. Look straight up here at me. All of us are busted. And sooner or later, our fear, limited perspective, self-preservation, my lack of trust hurts the people around me. Sometimes in tiny ways and sometimes in terrible ways. If you're hurting today, I'm guessing it doesn't bring you a ton of comfort that God redeems all things and that he will make all things good because you're right here in this moment suffering. So let me say this. While it's true that God will redeem it, It is also vitally important this morning that you hear me say, God sees you, that he's with you, that he loves you, that he can heal you, that he cares about you, and that he understands the brokenness in this world and is working to care for those who've been victimized. We see it right here in Genesis 20 in God coming to Abimelech. I don't know if it seemed odd to you when we first read it, but is it weird to you that God comes to Abimelech in Genesis 20 instead of going to Abraham? Why doesn't God go to Abraham and say, yo, Abraham, you knucklehead, you did the same thing you did in Genesis 12. Knock it off. That's not what God does. What God does is he goes to Abimelech in a dream. He goes to the pagan king in a dream. Look at it with me, if you will, in in Genesis 20, verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, at first, that could sort of seem like a threat, right? It could seem like God coming with thunder and lightning and being like, I'm going to smite you because of the bad thing you did. That That isn't what's happening here. He comes to Abimelech as an act of grace. He comes to Abimelech as a demonstration of his love for Abimelech. And he essentially says to Abimelech, hey, you don't know this, but you've got a woman in in your cohort, in your harem, that is married to another person. And if you go any further in that relationship, you're going to die because of it. That That isn't God threatening Abimelech. That's not God punishing Abimelech. That's God protecting Abimelech. That's God coming to a man who was ignorant of what he had done wrong and was ignorant of what more wrong he could do And caring for him. Look at it with me again. It says in three, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken for she's a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? 
Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this, right? He goes, I don't understand why I'm going to die. I haven't done anything wrong. He told me she was his sister. She told me she was his sister. So I I just kind of did the normal thing. I don't understand why I'm getting in trouble. And look at God's response. Verse 6, then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. It's a warning. God gives him a warning, which is loving. Now I want to be, I want to be really careful here, because what I'm not saying, and I don't want you to misunderstand me, what I'm not saying is that the abuse you've suffered is a warning from God uh, about not doing things that are worse, right? What I am saying is that the abuse you've suffered is a byproduct of the fallenness and the wickedness of men and women. And God can heal it and restore it, but it is a byproduct of a corrupt place. What I am saying is that in Abimelech's case, he doesn't go to Abraham. God doesn't come to Abraham and say, knock it off. He goes to Abimelech and says, hey, you're in some trouble because of somebody else. And I don't want this to go any further. So back away from it. That, that's a, a demonstration of God's affection. It's a demonstration of God's preservation, his protection, his care. God cares about you today. He speaks directly to Abimelech. He sometimes comes alongside us to push us away from things that could be even worse. God is a redeemer. Psalms chapter 37, verse 1. And by the way, we could read the whole, uh, the whole chapter of Psalms. It speaks directly to this. We don't have time for that this morning, but if you're looking for homework, and I know that's why you all came to church today for some homework, I would highly recommend that you read the entirety of Psalms 37 today. It's, it's worth reading. Let me read you six verses. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. I want you to understand that our God is a redeemer and that he cares, that he is with you and he sees you and he can heal you. But I also want you to see in the, in the big picture here that when we fail, so I'm, I'm now moving away from victims and I'm talking to victimizers. And by the way, all of us in the room fall into both categories in varying degrees. All of us have taken advantage of other people because of our selfishness at varying degrees. And all of us have been abused and hurt because of other people's selfishness to varying degrees. Those varying degrees require different responses. And you may be in this place and you need professional help. And and we are happy as a church to walk alongside you. But all of us are victim and victimizer in one way or another. Let me speak to the victimizer for a second. One of the things we want to take away from Genesis 19 and 20 is that our failures or our lack of faith do not thwart God's purposes. God's purposes are accomplished even in the midst of all this grossness, even in the midst of this manipulation and pain. God's purposes are not thwarted. We don't have to succeed for God to be victorious. 
Now, that's not a license for us to be ugly. It's not a license for us to be abusive or perverse. But what it does is it reminds you that your faithfulness does not keep God from accomplishing his goals. I think sometimes we think about our life of faith or our faithfulness kind of the way... Uh, did you guys see the movie Elf? you see the movie Elf? If you've seen the movie, uh, the Santa sleigh will only fly if there's enough Christmas spirit. And if there's not enough Christmas spirit, then Santa's sleigh won't fly. I think sometimes we think, oh, you know what? In order for... God to be victorious, we got to be good boys and girls, right? We got, we got to do all the right stuff. We got to not make mistakes. We got to look as holy as we can, maintain a religious thing so that Santa's sleigh will fly. That isn't how the story of human history works. God will be victorious in spite of your faithlessness. And guess what? You were faithless and you will be faithless again, right? A lapse. There will be moments of faithlessness for all of us. God can only work in spite of our faithlessness. But there is a comfort in that. Why? Because it takes the pressure off of you to sort of win some sort of cosmic battle, right? I want us to be able to turn loose of the pressure to win God's battles. He'll do that. Turn loose of the illusion that your goodness or holiness matters in the grand scheme. Romans 5.8 says that he died for us while we were sinners, He didn't die for us when we cleaned ourselves up. He didn't die for us when we memorized enough Bible verses or walked enough old ladies across the street. He didn't die for us when we proved that we were worth it. He died for us because we could not possibly prove that we're worth it. And that same grace guarantees us that his purposes will not be thwarted when we do something stupid, faithless, fearful, limited in perspective, In those moments where you stumble, you haven't ruined God's plan. Here's what happens. In those moments where you stumbled, God has not been glorified in those moments. You've not lived the life that God built you for. And worse, you've hurt other people. You've damaged other people. Why should we live a life of faithfulness? Not because it's sort of the battle between light and dark or good and evil. Not because the victory of Jesus hangs in the balance. It doesn't. Why should we be faithful? Because of the love of God and the love of others. Why should we live a life of faithfulness? Because of a love of God and a love of others. I want to say this as we sort of finish up here. God has always worked in spite of the weakness of man. He only has weak people to work with. He's glorified in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you didn't blow it today, if you didn't do something selfish and stupid today, it's still early. The good news is that God's plans will not be thwarted. The bad news is, and the reason to live a life of trust in God, to set aside your fear, to broaden your perspective, Right? Why? For the glory of God and the good of others. That's why we live a life of faithfulness. Let me say one last thing. When your selfishness and sin hurts others, there is a biblical response. When your selfishness and sin hurts others, there's a biblical response. First John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say this. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The first step when you realize that your selfishness or that your sin has hurt other people is to own it. To be honest with you, I don't even like uh, Abraham's response in Genesis 20 when Abimelech's like, dude, why'd you do this to me? Abraham's like, well, you know, technically she is my sister. And also, uh, 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 I, I thought you guys were godless around here, right? No, dude, no, 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 no. Just own it. Just own it. You guys, family, church, you're going to do something stupid. So am I. The first step is own it. Confess your sin. Just be like, yeah, uh, that was stupid. I was stupid. My perspective was limited. I was scared, whatever. Just own it. The first step is repentance and owning it. The second step I would say is apologizing. Apologizing, go back, right? Because it's one thing for you to sit in the privacy of your own home or your own car and be like, I'm crummy and I really hurt a bunch of people. It's another thing entirely to go to people and say, man, I I did not reveal Christ. I did not love you well. I want to make this right. So we own it and then we apologize. And then thirdly, I, I would say we do what is right, do what we can to make it right. Do what we can to make it right. I love uh, the story of Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector who'd like swindled a bunch of people and he meets Jesus and his response. This is the speech that Zacchaeus gives after meeting Jesus. Verse eight of Luke 19, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He doesn't just own it. He doesn't just apologize. He makes it right. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 says, If you were offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift, right? What's that talking about? It's talking about owning the thing we've done wrong and apologizing for it and making it right before we presume to worship God. Why? Because these things fit together. The glory of God and the good of others. So I want to say to you, in those moments where your selfishness, your limited perspective, your fear, your lack of trust or faith in God has hurt other people, own it, apologize for it, and do whatever you can to make it right. There's a biblical model of this. I've just given you a couple of quick examples. Here's it. Final statement. If you're someone in this room who's been hurt by the sin and selfishness of others, again, that's all of us. If you're someone in this room who's been hurt by the sin and selfishness of others, that hurt and that pain happens in varying degrees, right? So some of you have been brutalized and some of you've had people be unkind to you. They're, they're not necessarily in the same category, but they come from the same place. If you are someone in this room who has been hurt by sin and selfishness of others, listen, God sees you. And more than just seeing you and knowing what you're dealing with, God loves you. God can heal you. And that might seem trite and it might seem like, oh yeah, that's what the pastor's supposed to say. But God can heal you. God sees you and loves you and can heal you. He will bring justice. He will bring justice. It's all over Psalm 37. It's all over the Bible. God is just and justice will be served. You might not be the instrument that he uses to serve that justice, but God is just and good. And he can redeem all things. He can redeem and will redeem all things.
If you're here today and you're hurting, we're with you. God is with you. We live in a broken place where people are fearful and they have limited perspective. And as a result, they lack trust in God and they end up doing damage to the people around them. But we as God's people can do better. We as God's people can be those who both trust in the redemptive power of God and also recognize that our faithfulness makes a difference in the lives of the people we interact with. That it is for his glory and our good and the good of our neighbors. That's what we pull out of a gross couple of stories. Now the good news is next week we're going to go to Genesis 21 and Isaac will be born and we'll all be able to breathe a little bit. But today the band's going to come up and, and we're, going to, uh, we're going to finish with the time of response. And I want to set this up just a little bit for you. Because whether you are feeling the weight of victim or victimizer, whether you are recognizing places in your own life where you've been faithless and hurt others, or maybe places in your life where others have been faithless and hurt you, we have an opportunity in a demonstrative and active way to just bless one another today. And so uh, the elders and some of the staff that are in the room are going to come and they're going to stand on either side. So it's what we do every week to pray for one another. But I, I want to extend this. If, if you need prayer, come on, let's pray for you. But maybe all you need today is just to have somebody put their hands on your shoulder and look you in the eye and say, God sees you and loves you and can heal you. Maybe you just need to be with it in somebody else. So if you need, uh, if you just want one of the elders or one of our staff to just bless you, just speak to you of your sonship or your daughtership in the midst of the pain. Man, we're happy to do that too. Whatever God's stirring in you, as we, uh, as we sing these last couple of songs, I just want to invite you to, to have the freedom and the courage, if God prompts you, to stand up from where you're at, make your way down here and let us love on you well today. If you need help, if you're in a situation right now where you're being abused or taken advantage of, Man, I, I, am, I will be all over that. We will be with you. We will defend you. We will, we will have your back. But you, you don't carry that thing in silence. Let's, let's take care of one another. Let me pray and we'll respond together. God, <laughs> teaching a message like this and even saying things like I've just said, I, I feel intensely the limitations of my own power. I, I can't impact every heart in this place. I worked hard to prepare this message, but I can't possibly touch the depths of pain, the depths of regret, the depths of hurt. I, I just, I'm just this guy. I'm just a guy up here. It's got my own stuff. God, we need you to move in this place. We always need your Holy Spirit to move in this place and to touch hearts and lives. I pray that you would go beyond what I'm capable of and that you would meet each individual in this place in an individual way, that your spirit would rest in a sense of presence and love and affection on each person in this place, both to speak conviction where necessary, to speak of love and grace and healing. God, will you draw us together as we worship you corporately? Will you meet us individually and speak with a voice that goes beyond what a human speaker can do? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.